As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. I've never known a crook who wouldn't gamble in some form or another, you know, literally whether it's cards or horses or the casino, you know, they go to the casino and waste their money. That's right. Police have always known that if they keep a bit of a watch at the casinos, the card games, the two-up and the races, that any fresh money coming through the crooks will turn up there. Our favourite intrepid crime writer, Andrew Rule, is back to chat with us. As well as being fascinated by crime, Andrew is also intrigued by the horse racing industry. He has a new book out called Chance, of grit and gamblers and the romance of racing. And it features some stories where crime and the punt collide, including one of Australia's most audacious heists in history, the great bookie robbery of 1976. Andrew chats with us about the bookie robbery, his lifelong interest in horse racing and the colourful characters, chances and sometimes shady figures that inhabit this world. Here's Andrew to tell us more. I'm interested in it 
uh, and always have been because it has, uh, you know, winners and losers. It has um, right and wrong, good and evil. It has a, a whole range of things. And they say, you know, everyone's equal on the turf and you've got people rubbing shoulders who might be, you know, burglars and bank robbers at one side of it and barristers and judges at the other. But when you're at the races, um, they sort of all rub along. It's it's very interesting like that. And there's a line in the book because there's a lot of chapters and I was um, reading a few about obviously where there's been a bit of a crimey element, but that's not the whole whole part of the book. But you no. had the line that crooks are gamblers at heart. And I really love that because it was very um, literary, I thought, but you know, it is a gamble committing crime, isn't it? Look, when you think about this, a crook really is the ultimate gambler because they will gamble their freedom, you know, five years, 10 years, life in jail against a sum of money. And it's usually a ridiculous proposition. Why would you gamble 20 years against, you know, $200,000? It's crazy. It's about, you know, it's it's 50 bucks a day or something. It's crazy stuff. But they do it and they do it all the time. And really that's the ultimate gambler. I've never known a crook who wouldn't gamble in some form or another, you know, literally, whether it's cards or horses or the casino, you know, they go to the casino and waste their money. That's right. Police have always known that if they keep a bit of a watch at the casinos, the card games, the two-up and the races, that any fresh money coming through the crooks will turn up there. And what is it about horse racing that you really love because you you know we know that you write about crime you've been a reporter and a writer for many years but you do you do like to focus on this industry I do look I've found early in um, journalism that readers were pretty interested a broad range of readers were interested in sport uh, and in crime and I was never you know a really good sports writer I don't know a lot about a lot of sports uh, compared with the, the average sports enthusiast, I don't, for sure. But I found it a good thing to write about because you had winners and losers and you had triumph over adversity and all that stuff. And crime is, is, is similar in that you've sort of got good and evil and right and wrong. And these are very big, you know, you've got sex, death and betrayal. You've got all those big big things that writers have um, written about since the Greek tragedies were written. And so... By writing about them, you get an audience and people are fascinated by it. And that's basically why I wanted to write for an audience and that's why I chose it. One thing I do want to know, Andrew, is I like, on the surface of it, I do understand like what a bookie is, but I actually don't know the ins and outs. And I wonder, well, how is it that, how how does all the money roll in for bookies? Because bookies can make and have over the years made like a lot of money. So can you just explain for the listeners, um, what what's a bookie, an SP bookie? Well, an SP bookie is a starting price bookie. And this is something, they still exist. They're still out there somewhere, a few of them, probably fairly big operators, but not many of them. But back in the day before the TABs were brought in by governments, basically to push SP bookies out the door, SP bookies were notionally illegal, but they were illicit bookies who operated off course. They didn't. They did not operate on the race course. They operated basically from hotels and often barber shops, things like that, or up back lanes, even up lanes outside pubs or shopping centres in the inner suburbs. And these guys took bets from the public, often not necessarily big bets, often small bets from a lot of people, and they would just issue them with. Um, the, you know, the, a piece of paper with the name of the horse and five shillings, ten shillings, two dollars, whatever it might be, written on it. And the, if the horse won, the punter would be paid at the starting price odds. And the starting price odds were the horse, the sorry, the price that the horse started at at the races, the minute or the second it started. And that, of course, would fluctuate. Some horses were backed into short odds at the track. Some horses fluctuated and went out from, you know, 5 to 1 to 15 to 1 at the track. And whatever the starting price was, that's what the SP bookie paid out at. SP stands for starting price. Uh, They were so widespread 
between, I'll say the, the introduction of radio broadcasts in the late 20s, I think, really brought it on. It flourished in the Depression through World War II, very big in the 50s and early 60s because they were in every second pub, they were in every second barber shop. They, there were tens of thousands of SP bookies around Australia. They had a, a sort of a, uh, they were tolerated by the authorities until until they weren't. <laughs> and suddenly the authorities decided that they'd better be getting uh, some of this um, millions of uh, dollars worth of bets that were going around every week. And so they brought in the Totalizer Agency Board, government-run betting, and that really pushed a lot of the little SPs out the door because the tolerance that the police and the authorities had had for them from the 1930s until the 1960s suddenly ended. And with the uh, advent of the TABs and everything, it was a bit like when the Crown Casino was built in Melbourne. All of a sudden, all the illegal games in Chinatown were cracked down on by the police. Well, the same happened to the SPs. They didn't all die out. Um, big SPs still survive. They operate um, through phones, you know, clearly, and people ring them and have bets. You'd wonder why people would do that. Well, probably because they can get that the SP is not paying tax and probably the punter gets a better return often and it's probably a good outlet for black money and black money would be money generally um, made by criminal means or, you know, at least tax-free money. And so there's still some demand for SP bookies but we you don't hear a lot about it anymore. The licensed bookmakers, uh, they... Many many of them started back in post World War Two as SP bookies, and I've I've traced the rise of the licensed bookies from the SPs in my book by writing about a family called the Kane family, C A I N, spelt like the former premier. And Norm Kane was a tough young bloke, smart young guy. He worked in a boot factory in Fitzroy in the Depression. He started his own SP book on the side in local pubs and back lanes. By the end of the war, he'd given up the boot factory. He'd become a much bigger SP bookie. And then he got his on-course legal licence to be a bookmaker at the races. And he kept the SP book going with his uh, younger, uh, I think his brother and his sons. And gradually, the Canes became a bit of a bookmaking dynasty. Uh, I think three generations of Canes were bookmakers and in fact, one of the Canes, Steve Kane, grandson of Norm, the, the Depression-era guy, grandson, he was not a bookie, but he grew up surrounded by bookmaking and understanding it. And he became a merchant banker using a lot of the skills of mental arithmetic that he'd learnt from his dad and his granddad. And he um, was a great success in banking in Hong Kong. And he's come home to Australia to uh, lead a nice life and it was Steve Kane who approached me with the idea of writing a book about bookies, punting, racing and the whole thing. And so that's how this book was born. I hope I haven't uh, said too much there, but anyway, ask away. Well, I was reading one of the chapters and, um, you know, I, I find horse racing, you know, pretty interesting. I know there's a lot of people who sort of believe it's like a cruel sport, but there's certainly a lot of, um, I don't know, there's just a lot of stories in it and a lot of, um, you know, good stories, heartbreaking stories. But I was very interested in the chapter you wrote about the great bookie robbery, which is kind of a legendary crime in Australian history. It is. Happened happened in 1976, just before I was born. So I... Yeah, um, but I have heard of it, but didn't know heaps about it. So I'm really keen to talk a bit more about that. So talk us through that crime. The Great Bookie Robbery is one of the great crimes of Australian history. Uh, it's sort of like the Great Train Robbery in England. It's It's got a great ring about it. Um, and the interesting thing was it, it had an international element in that a very good crook, as police call, call them, you know, good crooks are 
a highly efficient crook that doesn't go shooting police or citizens. Um, a good crook called Ray Chuck, also called Ray, Ray Bennett. He had two different surnames, as a lot of people do. And um, I think he was born, Ray Chuck, up at a town called Chilton, funnily enough, uh, where he grew up in the same rented house that Raymond Edmonds later lived in, who, who became... Mr. Stinky. So there's uh, a very <laughs> small oh, wow. piece of trivia that the same house in a tiny town in northeast Victoria produced two boys called Ray. One became the great bookie robber and one became Mr. Stinky. Can you believe it? Anyway, uh, Raymond Patrick Bennett, uh, alias Ray Chuck, was a really tough, uh, smart crook, not universally liked. He was loved by those who followed him. He was hated by certain other crooks. Um, a family called the Canes, not the Canes, the bookies. The, these are the Kane brothers, K-A-N-E. They didn't get along well with um, Ray Chuck at all. They were sort of opposing factions in the underworld and in the painters and dockers and all that in the late 60s, early 70s. And Ray Chuck I think he was sort of a member of the Kangaroo Gang. That was the famous mob of Aussies that rampaged through Europe and England in the uh, early 70s. Um, yeah, stealing. I've heard about them. Heard Fascinating. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They did big, big jewel robberies and bank robberies and heists and cons and all sorts of wonderful stuff, really good stuff. And he was good at this stuff and he, he got jailed over there uh, and on one occasion, Ray Chuck, just to give you an idea about him, uh, he was in a holding cell where he'd been banged up because he'd been grabbed for some big jewel theft or something. And he was about to be called out before a magistrate's court to be remanded, you know, in jail. And there was a drunk in there, some just hobo guy, a vagrant, and he swapped identities with the vagrant. And when they said, bring up Bill Smith, the vagrant... <laughs> Up went Ray Chuck and got that out. <laughs> and um, no problem. And so um, uh, he was banged up at one time in England. He got uh, released from the Isle of Wight or somewhere like that, a jail, and he got early release, you know, that uh, early release scheme where they'd let you out for a few days and then you could go back in and to get used yeah. to living in, <laughs> living in society. And what he did, he got out for a week on this with his special release thing and he had to be back by you know next Friday he flew to Australia under a bodgy name with a bodgy passport met up with all his mates and said I've got a great idea for a, for a robbery <laughs> and he then flew back to England and served out his time got his parole or whatever came back to Australia bodgy name again I think and he got his mates together all these good robbers and he took them up to somewhere near out the back of Kyneton, like Trentham or Blackwood, one of those places, to a rural, a rural property. And he, he ran a boot camp as if he was a commando. And he'd been impressed by the Wembley gang in London who were really good um, robbers back in that era. And they used to do sort of commando raids on banks or jewellery shops or whatever. And they would have stopwatches and they'd be in and out in, you know, 60 seconds. And... They were geniuses at that and Ray Chuck had learnt from that example and he wanted his guys to be that good. So he had this boot camp up the bush for, you know, two weeks or whatever and he had them all fit and doing runs and not drinking, not smoking, whatever. And um, then they raided the Victorian Club. It's sometimes called the Victoria Club but I believe it's the Victorian Club which was the bookies club in Queen Street. And it's where the bookies all went and some big punters and some owners and others, some lawyers actually, were members of it. It was sort of a, it's a bit like the Australian club and all those, but it was for bookmakers and racing people. So it, it wasn't full of sort of gents and, um, you know, QCs and judges. It was more full of racing identities, <laughs> particularly bookies. And it's where the bookmakers, importantly, had a room upstairs where they would uh, settle on settling days held after the races. So if there were Saturday races, they would settle on, you know, Monday or Tuesday morning. They'd all go in there at a particular time, 11 o'clock or something, and there'd be all these big cash boxes of cash. Each bookie had a big uh, safe box held by an armoured car company. The armoured car company would bring the cash boxes. They'd be brought up on trolleys to this room in a lift, I think, 
and they had a, a mesh cage thing and they would people would sit in there and they would hand out money to those who were owed it, bookies and punters, and that they would divvy up all the cash from the races, settling day. They wouldn't settle large amounts at the races because it was just too much and it was too dangerous for people to walk around with, you know, $25,000 or whatever it might God. be. So they were clearly, you know, targets for, for crime. But the Victorian club, they weren't exactly idiots, bookies. They're pretty smooth, pretty smart, pretty shrewd and cunning. So they routinely had uh, armed police, like armed um, major crime or armed robbery detectives. They had an unofficial deal with them where they would turn up with their 38 pistols on their hips and maybe the odd shotgun and hang around on settling day and they'd eat a pie and get a beer and probably get, you know, uh, 100 bucks each cash, whatever. And that was an unofficial sort of security that worked well um, because basically if you've got armed detectives at a, at a thing, armed robbers who are smart are not going to rob it because they don't want to go shooting police and they don't want to get shot by police, so they're not going to rob it. But, Emily, I'm here to tell you that on this particular day in 1976, it's the Tuesday after Easter, right? There's been massive uh, Easter race meetings. I think Saturday, maybe maybe Sunday and Monday. It might have been three meetings, two or three, but a whole series of meetings. And all the cash from those three meetings was gathered together in the armoured car and came into the Victorian Club on the Tuesday to be distributed and uh, to be settled, as they said. And it was a bumper crop of money. Now, here's the big thing about bookies. It is widely held that bookies would put, uh, you know, if they'd had a big day and they had a lot of cash and they had jewellery and all sorts of stuff, some of them, they would put it in their... um, in their lockbox, and they would declare an amount. And it is widely held that some bookies would put a very large sum in in their box. Say say they'd had a big day and they'd won 50 grand. They might put, you know, 45,000 in the... And this is the price of a good house in 1976. This is the price of a house. Yeah, imagine that. A lot of money. Yeah, you could buy a car for $3,000. You buy a house for 25, you know, House in Turak for 50, right? So this is big money. And they might declare, for insurance purposes, they might just declare it as um, 10 grand because they don't want to get uh, pay big premiums, right? And yeah. they also want to keep the amount of money they've got a bit of a secret because that's the sort of blokes they are. They're dealing uh, off-the-books money. They dealt in a lot of black money, you know. Uh, they bet on the nod with punters. And these punters didn't want to declare winnings and the bookies didn't want to declare their winnings and so on. So a lot of it was off the books. The big issue about the great bookie robbery is how much ghost money was in the cash tins because um, what happened was this. Our mate Ray Chuck and his merry men, I think there were about six of them, they had inside information. And I've got this story from a man who was a an office bearer at the club and he told me exactly what happened he said in the past the club had been uh, there'd been a renovation next door a building built next door and the builders had had to have access to this floor that the bookies used and they'd put a door in through the wall at the back of the at the side the south side of the victorian club that joined into the building next door you know those Buildings that are cheek by jail, they're just Yeah, I love this part of the story, by the way. It's a shared wall. Okay, so the builders have put this wall in, uh, sorry, this door in, because they needed access in order to take mortar and bricks and stuff up to extend this other building. And when they'd finished extending the other building, way back in, you know, 1955 or whatever it was, they this big strong door, they just closed it and bolted it top and bottom and whatever, and had been painted to look like the same, uh, it was the same colour on the inside as the rest of the Victorian club, and it didn't stand out at all, but it was there. But no one really noticed it, but someone must have known it was there. Someone somewhere 
must have worked out that this door was there. And so the robbers knew that if they could get into the building next door, which they did because they're expert crimps, that on the Monday of Easter there would be no one there. They got in on the Monday or over that weekend at least and they cut, they removed one bolt, I think. Uh, They, uh, or cut it off so it was no longer holding the door at the top. They couldn't cut the one at the bottom. It was um, in a tricky position. So what they did was gouge a big groove in the floor in an arc so that they could still open that door even with the bolt thrown. Does that make sense? So yeah, they, it does, they, yeah. they, doc- they docked it up the door and the bolt and everything so they could open the door. When, when they took one of the um, screws or bolts out of the uh, bolt at the top of the door, it provided them with a perfect keyhole um, spy hole so that if they stood on a four-gallon drum or something, they could look through it, which was perfect. It wouldn't be noticed, but they could see through. And what they did was I think some of them hid there uh, overnight or, or that morning or whatever. They got into the place anyway, uh, and they were waiting for the bookies and the money to front up on that fatal Tuesday. And what they did was send one guy around to the front of the bookie club with a <laughs> that great all-round prop that Crooks always used, a grey dust coat. Because if you're wearing a dust coat <laughs> and a cap and a clipboard, you could be from the gas company, you could be from anywhere. This guy said, oh, I've got a lift problem here. And he jammed the lift open with a door, oh, sorry, with a, a chair or something, said there's a problem with the lift. And so he prevented um, any latecomers, any late bookies, who came after 11 or after 12 or whatever, he prevented anybody going up to the floor where the money was. So what they had was a room full of money, a room full of bookmakers, and they'd stuffed up the lift so no one could actually get in. And I don't know what they did about the back stairs, whether they, I think they sorted that out because there were six-armed men. And when the six-armed men suddenly appeared upstairs through the secret door, one of them will have gone over and stood at the stairs where the back stairs where the staff could get in and blocked it. The others uh, were all armed. They had machine guns. They had a lot. They looked really scary and they were really good at what they did because they frightened hell out of the bookies who were, you know, self-preservation type of guys. And they said, righto, lie down. One guy stalked up and down uh, around the room looking toey and twitchy, waving the machine gun around, and his job was to frighten everybody and stop any heroes from being heroic. The others got busy cutting open the the cage where the uh, cash boxes were kept and then cutting with big bolt cutters that they had with them, the big locks on the cash boxes, and they removed in a matter of minutes. It took a while. you know. It took, I think the whole thing might have taken 11 minutes. Uh, it's in the book. You'll see it. Um, they cut open, I think, 116 cash boxes and I think they got something like 118 cash bags and in the big calico bags or canvas bags is a, a lot of money. Now, to get back to the issue of the money, when this uh, story broke later that day, uh, you know, within minutes after they'd bolted with the cash, it was said that it was somewhere between 1.3 and 1.5 million or something. And every time the story was written, the estimates went up a bit because it was rumoured that there was far more money in the cash tins than they had declared. Now, this is a very interesting topic. And really, it, it doesn't matter a lot because, you know, if it, say it was 2 million rather than 1.3, Two million was a lot of money in 1976. As we discussed, it was a street full of houses. You know, it was a time when uh, uh, an adult would earn, say, $5,000 a year um, in working. Uh, in 1975, as a cadet reporter, I'd earned $3,000. So you can imagine what one and a half to two million looked like. However, they reckon, and I've talked to various people who've got various opinions. One of the guys in the room, a guy called Con McMahon, was a young bookmaker. He worked with uh, Mark Reed, a very prominent young bookie. He uh, is a funny guy, Con, and he's told me a story which is used in the book. So it's ruined his dinner party story for life. 
he said that when they <laughs> appeared with the machine guns and told them to get down, he deliberately got behind the biggest, fattest bookie in the room, a guy called Wally Beaver. <laughs> and he con, <laughs> Great con, name. Laid, con lay down behind Wally Beaver because <laughs> he, he said, if the bullets start flying, uh, Wally will protect me, you know, <laughs> because Wally was very large. He weighed about 20 stone. And Norm Kane, grandfather of my patron who wanted me to write the book, Norm Kane, very wise, smart bloke. He crawled and a very good billiard player. He might have been playing billiards when the guys came in. He got under the billiard table and he didn't realise they were big time robbers. He didn't know what they were. Uh, he just thought it's a robbery. He took his good diamond ring off, which is worth plenty, and his wallet, which would have had a lot of money in it, and he hid them under the table up on the rails of the table. <laughs> so these guys are always thinking, you know, uh, and they're studying the Axminster carpet because they don't want to recognise any of the robbers because they know very well that the robbers are the sort of guys who will end up at the race course betting the money. <laughs> so they're very keen not to recognise anybody. Um, but the robbers know very well who they're dealing with because there were a couple of examples of this. In the room is Ambrose Palmer, Ambrose Palmer, the great boxing trainer. Ambrose Palmer ran a gym at Festival Hall. He trained Johnny Famishon, the great Australian champion. He was a former, I think, Williamstown and Footscray footballer, very well-known guy, much loved uh, and known right through boxing circles and therefore to some extent through crime circles and racing circles and football circles. Everyone knew Ambrose. He was a bit of a hero. And Ambrose is in there uh, and he's lying on the floor, but he must have lifted his head or something because the guy with the machine gun said, that means you too, Ambrose. <laughs> <laughs> I love and, that in the book. I, I love that. And Ambrose kept quiet, but he recognised the voice. He knew that it was one of the guys that he'd had around his gym in the past because uh, I don't want to put a knock on boxing because I love boxing, but a lot of guys who, uh, not all boxers are criminals or end up criminals, but a lot of criminals have been boxers or knocked around boxing gyms or have hung around boxing. You know, it's just one of those things. Same with kickboxing. Hell of a lot of good crooks have been boxers or kickboxers, including, you know, Benji Veneman and many others. So uh, Ambrose recognised the voice. He knew that it was, I reckon he thought it was um, this guy Carol that was shot dead later on over the bookie robbery. But anyway, he did recognise the voice. And he didn't, he, he forgot that. He must have got amnesia from the shock of it all because he forgot to tell the police. Yeah, but I would get amnesia, to be honest, he, about that. But his amnesia came good because he mentioned it to somebody else in the gym a week or two later and the word uh, filtered back to the other crooks, the toe cutters, you know, the Kane brothers and others. And so the word soon filtered out who, who that it was uh, Ray Chuck's mob. It sort of didn't take a lot of working out. Anyway... Uh, after, I think, the 11 minutes, they escape with an unspecified amount. Um, one bookie said to me that uh, he knows that his old his father put in, uh, he was insured for 20000 but he actually had 50000 in there or something like that, a ratio like that, that the actual amount he had in was two and a half times what he was officially held and was paid for by insurance. And he reckons that a lot of the, not all of them, but a lot of bookies would have had cash in there on that basis that they might have had twice as much or two and a half times as much as they declared. Now, that wouldn't be the case for all of them because not all of them will have won on the, on the weekend. But most of them might have won. Another bookie, the guy that lay down behind Wally Beaver, Con McMahon, very shrewd man, very smart guy. He assures me that estimates that the bookie robbery was six million or eight million or ten million or fifteen million. He said they're all wrong. They're all too much. He said maybe it was double uh, what they declared, or maybe not. But he he doubts it. Uh, however, it's clear they got away with a shed load of money. I, I think it's conceivable that it was. Five million myself, but maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know. But wow. whether it was two or four or five, 
it was lots and it was enough to set up people who were smart and careful for life if they were careful with what they did with it. But of course they're crooks and as you said to me, all crooks are gamblers and in the end um, I'd suggest that, uh, it, that they, didn't ling they did not live long and happy lives afterwards. Most of them ended up uh, either dead or in jail or very sad and broken men. That wasn't a happy ending for nearly all of them. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Yeah, and that's something um, you describe in the book. So when people read Chance, they'll be able to find out kind of the fallout from uh, the robbery. Uh, yeah, look, and there's some inside stories there that Con McMahon has spoken to me, uh, the Keynes have spoken to me, the, as in the CAI and the bookmaker Keynes. Um, and not only that, but a, a, a lawyer man uh, called Stuart who was in the room and he was there with his father, uh, he described to me certain things and he described a fellow who had been at the club over many months before this that he thinks he says was never seen at the club again and he thinks he was some sort of spy or middleman who helped set it up. He might be wrong. Uh, I've heard other rumours. Billy Longley, the great Billy Longley, who was a painter and docker, uh, armed robber, um, murderer, he told me once that he believed um, that a particular racehorse trainer had tipped off uh, the robbers because he claimed that the same trainer had approached him about doing such a robbery and that Billy and his friends had declined to do it because they thought it was too dicey because of the presence of armed police. And that's the one thing that we haven't yet covered, Emily, and that is where were the coppers? Where were the police? Well, it's, it turns out that on this wonderful big payday after Easter, the biggest day probably of the year or one of the big two, I guess the one after Melbourne Cup would be huge, um, that the normal major crime detectives who turned up, you know, just before the arm, armoured car and came up in the lift with the with the trolley full of money and all that, um, they were sent on a wild goose chase to Frankston or somewhere. They were 
said, oh, quick, we've got a problem. We could have a siege in a bank or a blah, blah, blah. At Frankston, scramble, get down there. And these guys at the 11th hour, you know, like 10 o'clock in the morning, were sent out of town to Frankston or somewhere like that. And they were far away when the robbery happened. Very and convenient. It, in, if anybody reads the book, they will see what I believe to be the inside story of how that happened. I won't say any more. Yeah, you've got to read the book, but it's, um, it's yes, I was um, Were you re- reading it furiously. I was. I was reading it, it and one it, of my kids goes, Mum, why are you write, reading a book on horse racing? I said, it's about crime too. That's why I'm reading it. <laughs> is, it is it possible, Emily, that the only person to benefit long-term from the bookie robbery was a scallywag old copper who got a cut from it and ended up owning a car yard. Is that possible? I'll just throw that in. Yeah, it could be possible. And yes, it's a good question to pose. Um, Now, one of the other chapters that I read, and I have heard a bit about this person. It's a person, even if you're not into horse racing, you will know the name of Bill Waterhouse. I mean, massive name in racing. Huge. Now, that is a really really interesting story and a real yep. family saga. But um, let's talk a bit about Bill Waterhouse because he was an absolute, you know, huge figure in that world. He was. Bill Waterhouse, the late Bill Waterhouse, died uh, two years ago. Uh, he was once known or regarded as the biggest bookmaker in the world because Australia was a big bookmaking country. We had a lot of bookies. We had a lot of racing. We had a, lot of, a big bubble of money uh, post-World War II. I, my belief is that soldiers and sailors and uh, military people came back from the war, mostly footloose young men, many of them with sort of damaged by war. Uh, they had a pocket full of deferred pay. I think they drank a lot and they gambled heavily, many of them. Others, you know, got married and had kids and had the baby boom. But the ones who didn't, they went to the races and they punted big time. And I reckon all that deferred army pay found its way into sort of the racing ecosystem. And it turned bookies like Bill Waterhouse and a guy called Ken Ranger and various others into massive, massive bookmakers. And Bill Waterhouse uh, had been at university doing law in the 1940s. He briefly switched to medicine, Emily, because he was a reptile and he knew that if he did medicine, he wouldn't be called up to go to yes, the Yes, he war. was very canny in that very regard, Very cagey and canny. His family also bought, they were hoteliers in Sydney who uh, sold black market grog during the war and made a lot of money. Uh, they bought country properties to become primary producers so that Bill and his brothers would not have to go to the war. They, The sort of people they are, that was for other people to do. That was for other people to get killed or risk you know, life and limb, not for the likes of them. And this is the, the, the mark of Bill Waterhouse. He's basically a sociopath. Uh, he's highly intelligent, no conscience, uh, highly numerate, really good with numbers. Um, great brinkmanship. He could stare uh, punters in the face and tell a lie without blinking, which um, was you know a really handy thing to be able to do. He knew, and uh, although he hadn't actually practised as a barrister, he knew... He'd studied law and and knew a bit about it. Um, And uh, he started on the bookmaking uh, pretty young. And I think, you know, being hoteliers before that, the the Waterhouses had been SP bookies, illegal bookies, for a generation or two. And they had been smugglers way back in the old days. And they'd run illegal cockfights in Sydney. So they were sort of a, um, a wealthy criminal family in a sense. Uh, of the of the type of the type that is embraced in Sydney, because Sydney they don't care about you anything about you as long as you've got money, and so Bill Waterhouse became a big figure in Sydney because he made a lot of dough, turned it over, and had a lot of money most times, and so he it was no problem for him to be accepted in wider society, and to have you know judges and lawyers and senior police and politicians such as Neville Rand and others. All and Sir, uh, Sir Robert Askin, the Liberal Premier, who was very corrupt, they all knew Bill and Bill knew them, and they all rubbed each other's 
backs and uh, all that, scratched each other's backs is the right term. And so um, Bill was that sort of guy. And Bill, I have to say, was mixed up in the three greatest scandals in Australian racing history. And they were in order. Um, in 1969, the favourite for the Melbourne Cup, you've got to remember the Melbourne Cup was even bigger in those days than it is now, really. I um, can't imagine that, actually, because it's well, so big now. Well, it's so big, but a sort of half the population cared about it then. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the first Melbourne Cups in the 1860s, something like um, a third or a half of Melbourne's population went to the races. It was just massive. And so... It, it's its footprint in Australia-wide in the 60s, when I was a little kid, was just enormous. Everybody talked about it. 1969, uh, the favourite for the Melbourne Cup is a great, great stayer called Big Falou, trained by Bart Cummings, the great young, then young horse trainer. Big Falou had won, uh, he'd won the Caulfield Cup and that a lot of people had taken doubles with Big Flu in the Caulfield Cup with Big Flu in the Melbourne Cup, and it was a very damaging double for doubles bookmakers. Now, doubles bookies offered big odds. So you, the odds work this way. Say, you, say you're 10 to 1 uh, for the Caulfield Cup, you know, two months out, and you're 30 to 1 in the Melbourne Cup um, two months out. Doubles punters could... They could bet on that on one horse or to to win a double and multiply the odds together. Uh, so they'd say, well, if I think Big Flu is going to win both races, you get ten to one times thirty to one. That's three hundred to one, right? That's how it works. And so, the Big Flu double was going to absolutely crucify all these big doubles bookies. Now, Bill Waterhouse always claimed later that he wasn't taking doubles bets and all this, but that's basically a lie. He was an SP bookie taking illegal SP bets and other family members were, uh, of the Waterhouses were taking bets and friends of his would be taking bets. Bill would have his finger in all the pies and he and many other big doubles bookies stood to lose probably millions in 1969 if Big Falou won the race, or if another great Sydney horse called Tails won the Melbourne Cup. And what big, what Bill did, and we know this to be true now, but it was never proven at the time, he got a crooked strapper, a bent unit called Les Lewis, who worked for Bart Cummings, to nobble the horses. Bill was a great uh, one to have nobblers working for him. Nobblers went around, they, they, they called them fence jumpers too. They'd get over the fence at a stable at two o'clock in the morning on race day and they'd give a horse, they'd give a, a favourite, a horse that should win something, a purgative or a drug that would stop it, slow it down. Uh, the ideal result was that it was something that wouldn't stop the horse from starting in the race but would um, it would run a bad race. That was the perfect result. Noblers could also give a horse a go-fast drug um, but not so much. Mostly they noble favourites for the bookies because the bookies don't want favourites to win because everybody backed them. So what happened was Les Lewis, he nobbles Big Flu and he nobbles Tails at three o'clock in the morning at Bart Cummings Melbourne Stables. No one knows that he's done it because when they turn up at 4am, you know, it all seems normal. But what happened on this day was that Tails looked fairly normal when he got to the races, although he, he ran terribly. But Big Flu started to scour, and scour means to, you know, severe diarrhoea. Oh, uh, about poor Big Flu. Poor Big Flu, lovely horse champion. Uh, and he was a certainty to win the race because he'd beaten the eventual winner uh, by um, – he'd beaten the eventual winner – and on the, in a previous start, I think the Memsey Stakes, but in the Melbourne Cup he had 12 pounds less <laughs> in weight. So he was going to win easily. Uh, and he had the great Roy Higgins riding him. He just was unbackable. He was so good. 37 minutes or whatever before the race, 
he's scratched because he's scouring so severely. It's the greatest scandal in post-war racing and uh, it was a terrible thing. Uh, the horse did recover, but I don't know that he was ever quite as good again. It took him a while to recover. He, I think he had to be spelled and so on. But uh, it was a shocking thing to do because had that horse raced, had he got to the starter stall and then got, you know, felt ill as he raced in a two-mile handicap, he could have um, uh, collapsed during the running of the race, brought down 10 horses, killed two jockeys. You know, it's a shocking, shocking thing. Yeah. And so this was a serious fraud and also morally a very bad thing to do. It's not just some sort of jokey racing thing. It's a crime. It's a massive fraud. And it's dangerous. Animal, animal cruelty. Animal as cruelty. Well. It's got the lot. It's a shocker. Bill Waterhouse was in it up to his elbows. Of course, no one actually openly accused him. Um, I have got inside information in the story I wrote. I, I think I wrote ten thousand eight hundred words in the book about the Bill Waterhouse and fine cotton and other things to do with him. Uh, but I have certain inside information. Uh, a relative of mine who died this year, um, as I finished the book, he told me a story that he'd never told me before when it, when I told him I was writing about Bill Waterhouse and the Melbourne Cup. He said, he told me a story which I tell in the book and basically the short version is he was at a, uh, a Melbourne Cup Calcutta on the Monday night, the night before the Cup. Now, Calcutta is an event where people gather in a room and they bid on each Melbourne Cup horse and they put up money and, of course, the favourites cost the most money and the least favourite cost the least amount of money and it's effectively a sort of a way of betting on on a, on a horse so that if your horse wins, you win. You scoop the pool of the money, you know, the Calcutta money. Uh, and these are things that happen every um, on the Monday before every Melbourne Cup. They still do. I've been to many of them. Um, in fact, one year we were, <laughs> I was a, a big winner, luckily. Uh, but my relative said to me that he was at a, a Calcutta with a lot of um, bookies and publicans and others in the Victorian city of Sale. Uh, it might have been in the Sale Club, Sale Men's Club or something. And his friend who was a publican drew Big Falou. And the, the friend, the publican, was really, really happy. He said, I've got the hot favourite. He can't lose. Beauty. He drew him in the, in the Calcutta. And he said, I'm going to bid on him. as If you drew the horse, you could bid on it or you could sell it. Right? Don't worry. Don't worry about the details. He said, I'm going to keep it. I'll bid on him and I'll keep him because he's well worth it. And a very wise bookmaker from uh, a country town leaned over and he said, I wouldn't do that. Uh, sell him because uh, the mail is, he's off. He's not going to win. And the publican thought, right, so he sold it. He sold Big Flu at the Calcutta. Uh, the inside story was this, that the bookie who had the mail was a great friend of a big, big bookmaker in Melbourne called Albert Smith. Albert Smith was a really big bookie and Albert Smith was heavily involved with Bill Waterhouse and others in doubles, uh, in doubles bookmaking. Albert Smith was one of the many bookies who stood to lose a fortune on Big Flu, but he knew ahead, a day ahead, that Big Flu was off. And he told his mate uh, from Mafra, would you believe? And the mate warned the publican who was a friend of his. And that is a true story uh, as revealed for the first time. I've, no one's ever written it because no one ever knew it. And I, a relative told me that just before I wrote, the, you know, just as I wrote the book, and I've included it in that the story. That was good timing. It was. That was very it, good timing. My relative died in May, and um, I um, spoke at his funeral, and I, I mentioned that at the funeral how sad it was he wasn't going to see himself in the book because uh, his his thumbprints, his fingerprints are right through the book because he lived and died a gambler and knew a lot of stories. They do have good stories, don't they, gamblers? There's something, I mean, gambling can be absolutely devastating. I mean, we know that, terrible. you know, yeah. it has terrible effects, but there is there is a bit of a, 
Great mm, stories. R- roman- yeah, romanticism, great stories uh, in there. Really, it's the thread that holds this book together. There's, what, 23 or four stories. And basically the thread shared by all of it is that the nature of chance, whether it's straight up and down kosher, uh, which it mostly is, you know, or the chance of breeding horses, you know. Foals get born dead. Foals get born with crooked legs. Foals uh, don't get born at all. Um, mares don't get in foal. You know, your, your, your two-year-old, your beautiful two-year-old uh, is very slow. Your beautiful two-year-old goes through a fence and cuts its leg. Uh, all these things. Racing is so chancy. Uh, and it's a gamble at every turn and at every bit of it. And what I've done is pull together all those sorts of stories and many of them are about people overcoming the odds and overcoming all these bad things that happen in order that they have a win uh, and they plunge on a horse or put their life savings on it or whatever it might be. And some of these stories have sort of happy endings, some have uh, very bad endings and some I would suggest have bittersweet endings because it seems to me that Damon Runyon the great Damon Runyon, the American author of the uh, 30s and 40s, he said he wrote once, all horse players die broke. By that he meant punters. And uh, Americans call them horse players. And I think he's right, by and large, even if they're big winners, right through their careers, eventually they lose whatever it is and they lose their money and they die broke. Uh, And that is always... uh, impress me. I have a set of racing colours, Emily, that are royal blue, pale blue, sleeves and cap. Beautiful colours, which are occasionally used to this day. They belong to my great-grandfather, a bloke called Jack Rule, who was a punter. Uh, He was an SB bookie, but mostly a punter. Uh, Among other things, he ran shops and stuff. And uh, he died broke. And the only thing that was he left to one of my uncles was his racing colours. And there you are. So, um, uh, and that really, they're the stories I grew up with and that's probably the reason I wrote the book. Thanks to our guest, Andrew Rule. His book, Chance, is available now from all good booksellers. If you have a problem with gambling or know someone who does, you can phone Gambler's Helpline on 1800 858 858 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. The details are in our show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the ACAST Creator Network. 
As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.